you know, square one here, um, but our team wants to ensure that we are providing an update on uh, what progress were being made, how the how it's going to be approached, and what the task force will be able to uh, to get done. Uh, go ahead. On the same subject, and this is going to be really big news across Latin America, especially in those countries where people have come from. Um, what is the Biden administration's message to people who may see this in the news for the next few days and think, oh, they're changing the policy. Now might be a good time to go north. Well, the the message continues to be uh, what it has what it has been, and I and I appreciate you asking the questions because it is confusing as we take a lot of these steps forward. Uh, one is that this is not the time we want to put in place an immigration process here uh, that can that is humane, that is moral, that considers uh, applications for refugees, applications uh, uh, for people to come to into this country at the border in a in a in a way that um, treats people as human beings. That's going to take some time. It's not going to happen overnight. Obviously, we have a bill that we are hoping we'll be able to move through Congress. Uh, but we also feel, um, I don't think any parent can look at what's happened to those kids over the last couple of years and not feel that we should do everything in our power to get those kids back with their parents. So we are trying to repair the damage and the horrific actions of the prior administration by trying to do everything we can to reunite these kids with their families. But it remains a dangerous trip. It remains a time. This is not the time to come to the United States. We need to, the time to put in place uh, an immigration process so people can be treated humanely. One of the other things that immigration groups have been talking about, some Democrats as well, is the idea of potentially some kind of executive action that would shield immigrant workers who are considered essential workers mm -hmm. from the threat of deportation. Is that being considered? Is that being worked on? Uh, this will not be the end of our immigration actions or, or actions or efforts to work on these issues. Um, I don't have anything on that policy consideration well, for you, though. That was my next question. This is still being worked on. Can you give us a sense of what else may still be coming? Well, then I would, I would be getting ahead of a policy process, which I can't do from here, Ed. But this is a priority to the president uh, to uh, and to do everything he can, obviously putting forward the bill, but also taking the executive actions he, he had in his power to take to overturn the immoral steps of the last administration. So that's why he's doing all of these, uh, taking all of these steps within the first two weeks of being inaugurated. I suspect the answer to this one might be similar, but I want to ask it anyway. Sure. Uh, one of the things that was not addressed by these was the so-called Title 42, uh, the CDC thing, expelling migrants and asylum seekers with little or no due process during the pandemic. The idea that they could be sent back right away because of the pandemic. Is that up for review? And why was that not perhaps addressed right away since it's been a concern for a lot of advocates of immigrants who are trying to come across? Certainly, I, I know it has been. Um, I would just say that um, continuing to take policy steps to uh, address the plight of immigrant of migrant families to do so in a humane and moral way is a priority of this administration. Uh, we obviously are gonna continue to work on the immigration bill that we've proposed to Congress. These executive actions are just part of our strategy. Um, and if there's more uh, to report to you on that, I'm, I'm happy to uh, get to you directly. Uh, go ahead. Can I follow up on the immigration question? Mm -hmm. The executive orders that have been described so far don't actually change or raise the refugee cap, which is, you know, President Trump uh, reduced substantially. It doesn't also order the immediate release of children from ICE detention. The president has said that that's something that should be done immediately. Why didn't he do it today? Uh, I think. 
We're going to have more again um, soon in the coming days and weeks on more steps and actions that um, the president is interested in taking. So I'm just not going to get ahead of that right now. So you're saying he might still do it, but just isn't doing it immediately? Uh, again, I was saying that uh, there are additional steps the president will take, our policy teams will take, um, our experts will take to uh, address immigration in a humane and moral way. There are also a number of steps that are under the purview of the Department of Homeland Security and Secretary Mayorkas, who, of course, as you know, his confirmation was a bit delayed. Some of those are going to be under his purview. Um, and so I point you to them to also engage with on some of those questions. But there is more the president will have to share on refugees and other issues and soon. May I ask whether the president has made a decision on keeping or keeping the scope of Space Force? Wow, Space Force. It's the plane of today. Um, it is an interesting question. Um, I am happy to check with our Space Force point of contact. I'm not sure who that is. I will find out and see if we have any update on that. Uh, go ahead. Um, to a couple uh, start with COVID relief. Senator Manchin today put out a statement saying he was going to vote for the budget uh, proposal, but made clear that his final vote is on, needs to be on a proposal that's very targeted. He's opposed to the $15 minimum wage. Is the $15 minimum wage a must-have for this White House in any final package? Well, um, Phil, I should have also brought you up here to just talk about how a bill becomes a law, because well, I, I think have, you know. I have a 17-part reconciliation instructions question. Oh, good. I can't wait. We'll all tune in for it. Um, you know, Phil, I think um, there are a lot of um, points of view as should not be a surprise to anyone of different members of Congress. We respect all of them. We're happy to hear them. Hence, the president met with 10 Republican senators last night. Um, but we're not going to negotiate from here or, frankly, in public about what is going to be in and out of the package. We want that to work through the legislative practice practice process Sorry, that is, uh, that is ongoing now. And then on the, the meeting with the Republican senators, you, know, you said the word reiterated. I think in the statement last night, had the word reiterate three separate times. Like, it's very clear where we you like guys, that word. It's a good word. It's a solid word. But it underscores that your guys' position is firm. Mm -hmm. And so I guess my question is, you're talking about staff talks on technical details. Is that basically the ballgame right now in terms of the bipartisan talks? Like, they can prove things on the technical side. There are pieces if they want amendments. But broadly, this is what it is, and it's moving. Well, I think the president's uh, commitment is to urgently deliver relief to the American people. And that is what he has conveyed in every meeting he's had or engagement he's had with Democrats and Republicans. And as we just talked about, there's a process that's just in the early stages that's beginning on Capitol Hill to do exactly that. But there are also steps that can be taken or changes that can be made through negotiations that also through the legislative process have to happen between the House and Senate. There are amendments that can be proposed and voted on, and we're going to see that process through or allow that process to go through. As that's happening, the president will be continue to be engaged. He'll continue to have more discussions with a variety of members of Congress from both parties to see if there's places to come to consensus and agreement on how to approach some of the issues and challenges the American people are facing. Last one, you guys have made very clear the $130 billion for K-12 is crucial to reopening mm -hmm. schools. The, I think there's something along the lines of 60 to $65 billion in past proposals that has been obligated but is mostly unspent right now on the public school front. What are you guys doing to ensure that gets out the door given the priority it is in your next package? 
Sure. Well, um, my understanding from talking to our economic team is that uh, the funding what that was in the $900 billion package, I think is if that's what you're referring to, will be spent in the next couple of weeks. And so what we're trying to look ahead to is what are the needs as we're looking to public schools across the country that many of them need funding, many of them need PPE, many of them need testing, many of them need um, you know better ventilation in their schools to ensure we have adequate funded needed to uh, open the majority of schools within 100 days, which remains the president's goal. Go ahead. Yeah, um, today there was new data on the Sputnik V vaccine showing that it's quite effective. Um, and I'm wondering if the administration is concerned at all that Russia could use this vaccine to exert geopolitical power uh, with nations in need, for perhaps in Latin America. Uh, I, that is not a concern I've discussed with our national security team. Uh, obviously, our focus is on our own FDA approval process here and ensuring that we make uh, as much of the vaccine available to the American public. And uh, we just rejoined, as you know, uh, the World Health Organization because we believe that the more people who are vaccinated around the world, the safer we all are. Um, but I'm happy to speak with them about it and see if that's a concern they have. One other question on the COVID travel ban that is in place. Um, is that a temporary thing while the CDC and, and the Biden administration figure out a safe way for international travel to occur? Or is that seen as more long term, especially given that the variants are already here? Well, uh, these were steps taken, uh, as you know, by our team in order to increase the safety of the American public. And certainly we don't want them to be forever because we want to get the pandemic under control. But they will be in place as long as our health and medical experts believe they're necessary or essential uh, in order to keep the public safe. So the impact of variants, which is a very good question, is something you know they assess. And I would certainly encourage you to ask them that question on our next COVID call. Uh, go ahead. Um, there have been calls for some kind of boycott of the, the uh, China's 2022 Olympics. Um, given the, the administration's recent support of uh, the genocide designation there, does, does President Biden support, support those calls to perhaps find a new host country? Um, and, and have they engaged with other allies on that topic? Uh, well, I've seen some reports of that, um, and uh, I don't have any uh, update for you or um, preview for you or change of our approach to uh, the Beijing Olympics now. Um, President Biden has promised to make these visitor lives public and mm -hmm. bring that back, that tradition. Obviously, you guys are not having a lot of visitors due to the pandemic. To the extent that these, these calls are taking on virtually, is, is there any talk about a virtual visitor log or some kind of transparency on, on how those virtual meetings are being disclosed to the public? Well, our pledge is to be, a uh, venture to be, a to hope to be the most ethical, uh, ethically stringent uh, government in, in history. And we've put in place, he's put in place a number of steps and policies to deliver on exactly that. Uh, you're right that there not, uh, are not currently many visitors. At some point, hopefully there will be, and we will be returning to the release of those visitor logs. That was not the case during the prior administration. Uh, at this point, there's not a, a discussion of making virtual meetings up part of what's released. Go ahead, Jeff. Hey, uh, I actually have more visitor logs questions. Oh, okay. The first one is, has anybody in the administration looked at the logs from the weeks before or leading up to the, the January 6th riot to see if anyone connected with the riot has been in the building? 
You are not the first person to ask this question. It's a very interesting one or, or newsworthy one, I guess I should say. Um, I have not had a chance to talk to our team on whether we even have access to those logs. I mean, we obviously uh, know what information is put in from visits, people who come to visit, and we have a, a built the ability to release that um, over the coming months. Uh, I'm not aware of an assessment of that, but I will also ask our team if we have access to them or if there's a plan to look at them. Well, you get back to releasing, I know under Obama they came out on like a monthly basis, a few months after the date of effect. Mm -hmm. If it's possible, would you release them for the prior administration? Because there are a lot of people coming in and out of here where the public would only learn through a random media report or a camera got a picture. I'm not even sure if it's technically possible. That feels like the first question. So let me talk to our technical gurus and see what I can find out. Technical thing, if you don't mind. The first impeachment, there was a lot dealing with a foreign leader called by the president to Ukraine. Is that system still intact where there's notes and records of foreign leader calls? And is anybody on NSC or anybody else looking at those? From the prior administration? Yes. Like the past foreign leader calls by uh, I, I am not aware of an assessment of those, uh, Jeff. I think our focus is on our foreign leader calls the president, the current president of the United States is making to global leaders in an effort to rebuild our place in the world and uh, work on some diplomacy. Katie. Hi. Um, I just have another question on immigration. On the Family Reunification Task Force, can you talk, I know you said you're at square one, but can you talk a little bit more about the work ahead and finding some of these kids? I think the current number, it might be higher, you can correct me, is 600 or some. Um, and I'm also wondering if you can talk a little bit about how officials are going to evaluate cases to determine whether the families will be reunited in their home countries or if they will be allowed to stay here. Uh, it's a great question, Katie, and some of that is what uh, Secretary Mayorkas, newly newly confirmed Secretary Mayorkas, and the uh, task force will have to assess is, and it will be case by case. Um, there are estimates of between six and 700 kids, but part of what we need to do in the early stages, or I should say what the task force needs to do is determine what the accurate number is and where these kids are, and then uh, determine case by case uh, what the best process and approach is for uh, reuniting them with their family members. Uh, so this is, there's a great deal of work ahead. Um, there is a team that is very committed to that work and uh, part of uh, what I'm sure will be in the report around 120 days is, is what progress they've made on that effort. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, does the president think cutting off aid to Myanmar's government goes far enough or are you all looking at additional steps and what, what might those be? Well, uh, I think the State Department may, may have put a statement out, if I'm correct here, on uh, on the assessment made in the legal review uh, that is um, calling uh, the events in Burma a coup. Um, so, and as you also know, and uh, we talked about a little bit here yesterday, but there was a um, releasing of some, there were some sanctions relieved over the last several years because of steps that the government had taken toward democracy. There are, there has been a rollback of those and obviously looking at sanctions is a big tool uh, that would certainly be assessed. Um, and I think that would be the one I would focus on at this point in time. So, uh, we haven't heard the president, we haven't seen a readout of the president talking to President Xi. And I was wondering if there's something scheduled or when that might be. It's been a couple weeks? Less than two weeks, actually. It may seem longer to you. Uh, you know, the our, our, our approach to um, China and our approach to our relationship in China, with China, um, you know, is um, strategic, 
uh, obviously, and um, we are uh, working to ensure that we are approaching that relationship from a position of strength. Uh, and that includes engagement with our allies and partners. A lot of those calls have happened over the last 10 weeks, 10 weeks, 10 days, maybe that was a little 40 in there, the 10 weeks, um, uh, 10 days, uh, they will continue. Um, and also engagements with Democrats and Republicans in Congress about the path forward. Um, I don't have any call to predict for you at this point in time. Obviously, with Secretary of State Tony Blinken now confirmed, uh, there are additional uh, layers to engage with the Chinese, but uh, we'll let you know when a call is, is happening and certainly have a readout for all of you as well. Sounds a lot like the strategy is not to talk to him at this time because you're talking about speaking to allies and, and making other calls first. Is uh, Have they requested a, a call? I don't have anything more for you. I think I don't appreciate the like putting words in my mouth. That wasn't what my effort was. What I was conveying is what our strategy is here from the United States, which is to work with our partners and allies and determine what the right time is. Of course, the relationship with China is going to be multi-layered. We'll deal with climate. We'll deal with uh, we'll deal with the economy. We'll deal with uh, security, uh, and that is a of course a priority to President Biden. He's spoken about it during the transition. He's spoken about it. Uh, obviously, he's had uh, engagement with his national security team about a range of issues, including China. We've been here less than two weeks, and uh, when we have a call to read out, I'll make sure you know. Go ahead in the back. Thanks, Jen. I want to ask you a few on the rescue plan talks, and I want to follow up on a question that Phil had asked you. Um, you had acknowledged that the, the gap between the administration and Republicans is wide, but the talks last night was constructive. Mm -hmm. So after the discussion in the Oval Office last night, is the number from, from the White House still $1.9 trillion? It is. Um, on the issue of the minimum wage, mm -hmm. you had said that um, the president believes that a nurse and a teacher, a couple who makes $120,000, should get a check. So that's clearly a, a quote-unquote red line. I don't know if you want to describe it as that, but something that the president wants. Red line is an about, old term. We're not going to use it again. Okay, that's <laughs> um, but when you were asked about the minimum wage, you said you're not going to negotiate from here and you want to work through that. So it seems as if the president might be open to dropping the minimum wage from the bill. Is that a, a I know assessment? there's a lot of appetite for what is going to be negotiated and out of the bill. I totally get it. This is a big topic of interest. But uh, what I was just conveying as an example is that ensuring those checks are in the hands of Americans is a top priority for the president. I wasn't taking in and out things in the bill. Uh, that will be a negotiation that will happen through Democrats and Republicans in Congress. Obviously, the reconciliation process has just started. There are many opportunities for Republicans to offer amendments. There's a whole negotiation that's going to take place. And uh, will the president will continue to be engaged with members of both parties through that process. And on the issue of Senator Manchin and his statement today, he, he talked about how um, he would like to see something targeted. He said, let me be clear. And those are the words I shared with President Biden. Our focus must be targeted on the COVID-19 crisis and Americans who have been most impacted by the pandemic, his quote. Uh, does the White House believe that $1.9 is a targeted package? Well, the size of the package was determined not for shock value, but to address the dual crises that we're facing. And uh, that includes ensuring that millions of Americans uh, can put food on the table. One in seven Americans, uh, American families don't uh, are concerned about food security right now. It ensures that we have funding, that we can uh, reopen schools so that kids can go back to school, mothers and fathers cannot worry about their kids, and ensures that uh, 
that people can apply for unemployment insurance. These, the, the size of the package was determined, of course, in consultation with members on the Hill, but also based on the recommendations of uh, economists, on health experts, and uh, that's how we came up with that number. And lastly, there's going to be a jobs report on Friday. Mm -hmm. um, depending on how that jobs report looks, might that change how the White House views what needs to be in the package or not, or you, you kind of believe that this is the best framework now, and that's what you're going with? I mean, if there was a jobs report that there were 10 million jobs created, that would be great news. I don't suspect that will be what the outcome of the jobs numbers will be. Um, so no, it will not change. As we saw from the CBO numbers, um, were there, which predict, projected, I should say, that there would be growth this year. That's obviously positive, but we're digging out of a massive hole. And the challenge right now is that it's going to take years to return to uh, the pace of job growth, of economic growth that the country needs to be at. So no, I wouldn't suspect it would change things. Go ahead in the back. Thank you, Jen. Um, a couple of follow-ups. Sure. Uh, first, to Tamara's question. Uh, Governor uh, Hogan mm -hmm. uh, said that there has been two new, uh, two more cases of the South African variant in Montgomery County and is in Maryland. Uh, and people were coming back from abroad. Uh, I, I mean, is, is that an opportunity to, are you worried? Is that an opportunity to eventually widen the, uh, the travel restrictions? Well, I think what our team, our health and medical teams do, uh, so the CDC and others who are actual doctors, uh, is make assessments about what steps need to be taken, whether it's masking uh, that, as you know, is now required on planes or travel restrictions from certain countries in order to keep the American people safe. And certainly the... It hasn't worked in Maryland, obviously. Well, I don't know that it hasn't worked because we also have prevented a number of people from coming into the country and tried to take steps to reduce the spread uh, of COVID and also uh, the spread of some of these variants, but they will assess steps that need to be taken based on variants. Obviously, that's something that they uh, review on a daily basis. Follow up to Anita's question. Mm -hmm. um, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, the president hasn't spoken yet with Prime Minister Netanyahu. He's an I. Isn't that surprising? I, I don't know that it's surprising less than two weeks into an administration. He hasn't called every foreign leader yet. He certainly would love to spend more time talking to foreign leaders. Uh, that's, you know, his first love is foreign policy. But I expect he'll continue to have additional engagements in the weeks ahead. And obviously we have uh, a long and abiding relationship with Israel, uh, important security relationship. I'm sure they'll discuss that in a range of issues when they do connect. Last question, Jen. Mm -hmm. um, since uh, Bill Clinton, President Clinton and President Obama made Canada the destination of the first trip. Can we expect the same thing from? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, I was like, that was a very creative way of asking the first foreign trip question. Uh, I don't have anything to preview for you in terms of um, which where the president will travel on his first foreign trip. I'm as eager as you all are. I'm as eager as you all are. I love foreign travel. Uh, I will remind you uh, that you know his first call was, of course, to the Prime Minister of Canada. So that is certainly affirmation of the importance of the relationship. Uh, go ahead in the back. Yeah, thanks, Jen. Uh, one on immigration and one on jobs, uh, if that's okay. Sure. The, the, so the president's third executive order, as I'm reading it, restoring faith in our legal immigration system and promoting integration of new Americans. Should visa applicants in the, in the K-1, the student, E-2, visa program, should they take this as a sign 
that they'll be granted travel waivers to return to the United States. I know you were asked about that last week. Yeah, I was, and it is still under review. Uh, obviously, as we talked about a little bit last week, or I don't remember if you were here that day, but uh, but it was a question someone else asked, and married couples, as you know, are able to uh, travel. There was a review of, of students and um, of couples who were not married. Uh, that review hasn't concluded yet. And then on jobs, uh, given that Mayor, I guess now Secretary Buttigieg has been confirmed, when can we expect to see a detailed infrastructure plan given the potential for new job creation there? Well, we're, we're going to officially invite Secretary Buttigieg to come to this briefing room and talk to you all about it whenever he has that to discuss, or even before then. Um, he has been obviously uh, working on getting confirmed, but I know he's eager to get to work, and we'll see when he has more specifics to lay out. The announcement today with respect to the vaccine, equity is a big part of that. Yes. You've been rolling out that previously. Mm -hmm. To what extent is international equity factoring in? Right now, the orders you have add up if they all come through, which is admittedly a big if, to quite a bit more than the U.S. would need. What would you do with all that? And are you concerned that you might be boxing out less wealthy countries from getting earlier access to the vaccine? Well, that's certainly not our objective. The president's objective is to have as many vaccines. As you said, there's a lot of factors that could happen here that would could prevent this from happening exactly as we've planned it. Freezers can break, trucks can break, snowstorms, as we've seen this week. Uh, we're fully aware of that. May our problem be that we have too many vaccines to put in the arms of the American people. Uh, that is not the current problem we're tracking, so that's what our first focus is going to be at this point in time. If that happens, will you distribute them to allies first on the needs basis? I certainly hope that's our challenge and our problem, and I'm sure we will uh, be happy to discuss that if that is our issue. But as you know, we've also rejoined the World Health Organization. We want to have a seat at the table. It's important that our global community is healthy, not just our community in the United States, but we're going to focus first on ensuring the American people are vaccinated. Go ahead. Just another vaccine question. You guys, you mentioned you ramped up 16% distribution last week, yeah. 5%. You obviously have the million doses going out to the pharmacies as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeff was talking about how this is a ramp up of Moderna and Pfizer. Mm -hmm. What kind of visibility are you getting into what's coming? Like, did you know the 15% was, or 16% last week was coming? Did you know the five, like how long in advance do you know? Did we know we could plan to announce so the new? actually announce things and kick them into gear. Yeah, well, we're, we're working on trying to be able to have that ability and that assessment. As governors, I'm sure, will tell you or have told many of you, that's also what they're looking on, right? Looking at. So we're trying to get to a place where we know what's coming so governors and local officials know what's coming to them and they can assess where to distribute it in their states. Um, it, you know, the process is at the early stages, but our goal is certainly to have an understanding of uh, when we'll be able to ramp up um, distribution to states. So, like on something like today, mm -hmm. how many days? days ago did you know, okay, on Tuesday we can announce that on February 11th we've got a million doses going out to pharmacies. What's the turnaround on that? Well, that particular announcement has a couple of components, right? It's, it's of course, engagement with, with states and governors and engaging with them is pivotal, but also with pharmacies and ensuring that they're able to do it. I mean, if you log on to CVS to do uh, an appointment to get a flu shot, you want to know that the, the system is going to work. So there are a lot of steps in the process. Uh, I'm not sure how many days in advance we knew that it was full to go. Not many, um, but, uh, you know, it takes a great deal of coordination to make sure governors are 
um, feel comfortable with the announcements being made, that we're fully coordinating with them, that uh, they can explain to their public that, of course, pharmacies are just a part of what we're doing, right? Uh, it's not, you know, a million doses is a lot. It is not going to vaccinate the entire country. We're going to ramp that up. So that leaves some onus on them to be able to communicate where other people, where people can also get their vaccines. So that coordination is key as a part of it, several components in this one, uh, but we don't usually sit on these announcements, so I don't think that long. Go ahead. John, Senator Schumer just came out and said that he had a, quote, really good lunch with uh, the president and Secretary Yellen. Uh, he also said that the president told Republicans last night that the $600 billion was way too small. Um, does that track with what he, with, with your understanding of what he actually said to them last night? Yes. I mean, the president has been clear that our risk is not having a package that's too big. It's having a package that's too small. And there have been public um, proposals, of course, by by these senators and by others to split the package, to do a smaller package. And his view is that there are key components um, and funding that would be needed in order to ensure that millions of millions of people have checks, um, you know, in their hands, that we make uh, ensure people are getting those $1,400 checks, that we ensure that we are properly funding schools to reopen, uh, that people can, uh, that we're getting, we have the funding needed to get shots in the arms of the American people. So uh, that is uh, not a cheap endeavor and one that, uh, but those key components are all a priority to the president. Go ahead, Anita. Well, just wanted to follow up on the meeting last night. Um, in the readout and all that we've heard is about the relief bill. Did any other issue come up? It, it was quite a lengthy meeting, a couple hours. I wondered if the president brought up anything or if the senators brought up executive orders or other policy issues, or was it solely focused? It was focused on the American Rescue Plan, and a, a, they had a robust discussion about it. I don't have any more of a readout for you than what we provided last night. About the lunch, I know that I think it was happening as we came out. I know it's happening right now, so I don't actually know, but we will we will put out um, a readout of it afterwards. And the goal was just to discuss the same the bill, yeah. but nothing else. Exactly, that was the and obviously people can raise what they want to raise. I'm sure Democratic senators will share with all of you what they raise, but uh, the focus of it was to discuss the American Rescue Plan, uh, the path forward uh, and the imperative of moving it ahead. Go ahead in the back. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Okay. Um, uh, is there any plan or date set for the president to address a joint session of Congress? And are you guys already working on his address and is selling the American Rescue Package part of that and in what way? Uh, not yet and not yet to the first two questions. Um, and it really depends on the timing. Of course, we have, there's urgency, as you've heard the president say and all of us say in moving this package forward. Uh, I think as he also said in his primetime address when he rolled and he announced the American Rescue Plan, he also has plans to announce uh, a Build Back Better agenda. And our plans would be to do that once we are uh, at a point where it's, um, that can be the next priority. Um, so uh, it really, we, we don't have a date yet uh, and depends on when that date is and what the focus will be and not working on it quite yet. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, so on the, on the UAE uh, aluminum tariff announcement, I know the president had insinuated that he wants to do a full review of former President Trump's tariffs before acting on any of those. And he, uh, you know, the president, or the former president, signed that out on December 31st. Should we take this announcement as an indication that that review is completed? Or is this just a one-off instance uh, specifically pertaining to UAE? So, uh, as you said, and for people who are not totally as familiar with this issue as you are, I know there's a lot going on in the news, um, 
you know, shortly before the inauguration of President Biden, the United States lifted a 10 percent uh, existing tariff uh, under Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act on aluminum imports uh, for the UAE. His campaign promise included a commitment to carefully evaluating all steps taken by the previous administration on trade, as you also said, including the private deals and assurances that may have been made. Um, as part of his campaign commitment, we are commi co conducting an immediate review. So the review is uh, underway of the previous administration's trade policy to determine what steps need to be taken. Um, so uh, that includes, um, you know, decisions on tariffs um, and, um, you know, the the previous administration's decision to lift the existing tariff on, on the UAE under Section 230 at the last hour was made clearly in our view on the basis of foreign policy issues unrelated to trade. So it's all part of the ongoing review. Thank you, Jen. Great. Thanks, everyone. See you tomorrow. Start today. Let's go 2021. Kicking off the new year strong. It's time to take care of you with healthy foods, fitness. You're incredible. And how to jumpstart your love life. Cupid is winning. So join us and start today. Make no mistake, what happened that day was an insurrection against the United States government. Is this the beginning of something or the end of something? Should Donald Trump be ostracized from the Republican Party as you know it? If it's Sunday, it's Meet the Press. siege on Congress. Lawmakers moved to safe locations. There's two more weeks left in this presidency. Where is this going? Despite what we've been through, there will be a transfer of power at the U.S. Capitol. NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. You're watching NBC News Now. We've got some breaking news. Well, we actually saw a large convoy of the National Guard come through here. It's news made for your streaming world. Live weekdays starting at 6 a.m. Eastern. in our changing world. Download the NBC News app. We are a country of laws, a democracy built on free and fair elections, where the majority, not the mob, rules. And no rioter, no act of insurrection or domestic terror, no desperate despot can take away all we have built, all that we stand for, and all we hold dear.
there is growing evidence that law enforcement and veterans with ties to extremist groups took part in the insurrection on Capitol Hill. Now, Congresswoman Jackie Speer of California wants to weed those people out before they start working for the federal government. She wrote a letter to President Biden calling on him to issue an executive order to screen social media for extremist links, adding another step to granting security clearances for federal employees and military troops. NBC News national security reporter Dan DeLuce joins us now. So, Dan, first of all, tell us more about what Representative Speer is calling for, and is it possible? So she's saying that there are this uh, elaborate security clearance backgrounds that are done for joining the military or people with sensitive national security jobs in the federal government, but there is not a systemic look at people's social media accounts, which has become fairly standard in the private sector for a lot of big companies. And she's saying we've got to look at social media posts because that is where a lot of extremist groups recruit and it's, it's where a lot can be revealed. And she's asking the Pentagon and the federal government to add this uh, to the whole process. This go as far as forcing the military or the Department of Defense to run a background check on every member of the military and everyone with a security clearance? Yes, uh, you know, in fact, there already are background checks that are being done uh, all the time, uh, even after you join the military. Uh, or the intelligence services, and they're updated periodically. And what she and other people are calling for is they've got to, you know, sort of join the 21st century and look at people's social media if they've got, you know, sensitive jobs in the military or in the intelligence realm. And so I, I think there is some support for this. There are obviously are privacy concerns and free speech concerns. But keep in mind, people's financial data are, are heavily uh, uh, looked at and checked when you apply for these jobs. So much of these things that are put on social media are just right there for the public to see. So, Dan, thank you so much. Thank you. After the January 6th riots, mainstream social media rid itself of Donald Trump and thousands of other conspiracy theorists. Twitter dropped more than 70,000 accounts devoted to QAnon in a single day. The question is, does this sort of deplatforming work? Companies have exercised that power before. When Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube banned extreme right celebrities like Milo Yiannopoulos, Alex Jones, and Laura Loomer, they were forced to go to smaller platforms. What we have found is that the audiences uh, thin considerably, uh, their revenue streams uh, decline. So those two things are significant. The other thing that we found is a lot of them become uh, slightly mellower in, in their tone and their use of language, perhaps because, in fact, they were more into it for the attention uh, and the revenue than they were into it ideologically. Removing influential figures from social media seems to have several effects. A 2015 study of ISIS deplatforming by the Brookings Institute found that ISIS influencers lost their followers when forced to smaller platforms, hurting their efforts to recruit or inspire extremist activity. And in the wake of the Capitol insurrection, a Zignal Labs analysis found that misinformation about election fraud fell 73% on Twitter after Trump was kicked off. 
When major misinformation players and groups are kicked off mainstream social media, it makes it harder for them to recruit and organize. So there are clear benefits to deplatforming. We found that it works quite well for the mainstream social media platforms. It's good for, in some sense for their public image. It's good for their business model. But I'm not so sure that it's so good for the internet, and I'm not so sure that it's so good for Instagram. For one thing, while we know that these companies have the legal right to control what's on their platforms, there is concern about free speech limitations on the digital marketplace of ideas. Even Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey worried openly that banning Trump, quote, sets a precedent I feel is dangerous. The power an individual or corporation has over a part of the global public conversation. Another risk of deplatforming is that we wind up with an alternative universe of extremist platforms and services, a second web hidden from View. I'm waiting to see where, where kind of the dust settles, so to speak, and, and where Trump, uh, where Trump's megaphone ends up. If he manages to end up on a mainstream platform or, or something like Parler, um, I think they will follow. China has a separate internet, Russia in a way, Iran in a way, you know, and, and, and for the U.S. to have two of them, yeah, I, just, I find it, I find it quite, quite striking. And there's a fear that spending time in more obscure online echo chambers where everyone has the same beliefs can have have a radicalizing effect. In a 2019 interview, Mark Kapitanovich told us he fell into a set of white supremacist beliefs by virtue of the crowd he was with online. Believe it or not, like one of the first reasons why I started browsing like the political board on 4chan was to um, look at and laugh at racist people. Hmm. Like, um, you know, I would see them and I'd see the things that they were saying and I thought like, wow, this is really, really dumb. Look at these people. Um, being around so many of those people and, um, you know, just reading what they have to say about things, um, it can change your mindset in ways that you don't realize. So which is more dangerous here? The open broadcast of extremism or a handful of people more deeply radicalized in a dark corner of the web? Maybe there's a third option. Maybe companies should build algorithms that don't just show us what's most likely to capture our attention and that group us that way. So the birds of a feather, feather flock together. So you could optimize them for, for diversity. If social media put a wider range of people together, some studies suggest it could keep the ugliest instincts of extremists in check. Here's one finding from brain scans of Al-Qaeda sympathizers as they spent time online with people who disapproved of their calls for violence. Parts of the brain that were previously offline that were deactivated that are associated with deliberative reasoning and self-reflection those parts of the brain actually came back online when they realized that their peer group disagreed with them. So it's not that they lost their devotion to those values but something about having your peer group disapprove of your behavior causes you to pull back on your actions a little bit. Exactly. Lawmakers are now looking closely at these companies. Shortly after the Capitol attack, letters from members of Congress to the heads of Facebook, Google, YouTube, and Twitter asked for a change to their algorithms. The letter to Mark Zuckerberg complained that, quote, Facebook, like other social media platforms, sorts and presents information to users by feeding them the content most likely to reinforce their existing political biases. Maybe we just need a bit more fact-checking. All the platforms instituted a labeling policy around election misinformation, and Twitter has a new feature called Birdwatch that allows Wikipedia-style moderation, where trusted users weigh in on what's true or false. Perhaps Europe could be a model. There, the laws that regulate tech companies are much stricter. I think it's entirely legitimate that democratic processes bring forward checks and balances on these companies and 
the narrative needs to change from that being an attack on the companies to it being a protection of the people. The question is, who will step up to change social media? The industry, the courts, the government? Whatever the answer, social media companies may be about to change. They've uh, determined what we know. They, they have a huge influence on the information that we consume and the conversations we have and the people we meet. And so um, it can't simply be a free-for-all, I think, going forward. I'm desperate here. <laughs> here we are, and we're going to see what happens. All of these people are waiting outside of the forum just to try and get a leftover vaccine. Some of them have been waiting in their cars for over an hour in the hopes of getting a dose that goes unused. They come by car and on foot, all because of word of mouth. Friends, family, someone told them they may have a chance to get a shot if they come to the forum at day's end. It's one of LA's large capacity vaccination sites. And Frank Anderson lives about two miles away. We had some friends. We had been trying to get an appointment. We were unable to get an appointment. They were able to get in. There was a chance of getting the vaccine. If you were here at the end of the day, people don't show up for appointments or whatever, and they have them left over, they would give them to uh, whoever was here rather than throwing them out. That's another common thread. These so-called vaccine chasers either couldn't find an appointment or had trouble navigating the website. Several don't qualify for an appointment yet, like Andrew Velasquez. But if this works, he'll bring his Dad. I'm having difficulty getting an appointment for my father, so I wanted to see how the process is today before I come and bring him to try and, you know, get a leftover uh, vaccine at the end of the day because I've been trying to get an appointment for the past week for him and it just keeps failing. The website keeps crashing. Sabine Schlosser's elderly parents did get vaccinated through the appointment system. She says staff at the forum suggested she give this a try for herself. As we were going through, uh, because of the incoming rain, we thought there was a possibility that people might not be coming out for their appointments today. And when we asked, uh, they said it uh, would be worthwhile to come back at four and hang out to see if there was leftover shots. Earlier in the vaccine rollout, the strategy may have worked for more people before counties ironed out some of the kinks in their distribution. But now, supply is short. Marco Rodriguez, a spokesperson with the LA County Fire Department, tells us the chances of getting a leftover shot in one of these unofficial standby lines are slim. Any extra doses are going to law enforcement or healthcare workers on site. And at most, there's only a handful of surplus shots on any given day. Right now we are using all of the vaccines that I've been using. Uh, we, that's why we have an appointment process and we are uh, vaccinating only people that make appointments. According to LA County Public Health, an average of 10% of appointments are no-shows. Still, the chance, however slim, is enough to keep these vaccine hopefuls coming back. We might come back tomorrow because um, we don't mind the rain and it's supposed to be pouring rain tomorrow. So we'll see, maybe come back tomorrow. You're willing to wait out here in the rain to try to get the vaccine? You bet.
The anti-Donald Trump group, The Lincoln Project, condemning its co-founder, John Weaver. The New York Times reporting allegations from nearly two dozen men who say that Weaver sent them sexually provocative messages, often suggesting that he could help them get work in politics. The Lincoln Project calling Weaver a predator, a liar, and an abuser, adding the totality of his deceptions are beyond anything any of us could have imagined, and we are absolutely shocked and sickened by it. Weaver has been on medical leave from The Lincoln Project since last summer and hasn't responded to NBC News' request for comment. NBC News political reporter uh, Ali Vitali joining me now. Ali, before we dig into these allegations, first, uh, for our viewers who don't know, could you tell them more about who John Weaver is and, and the major roles he's had within the GOP? Allison, this is a name that you would know if you run in Washington circles and follow presidential politics. But if you're just the average American, you probably don't know who John Weaver is. He's a veteran Republican consultant. He has been a strategist on campaigns for the last 30 or so years, working for people like John McCain when he ran for president in 2000 and 2008. John Huntsman, as well as most recently, John Kasich in 2016. But after all of those presidential campaigns in the age of Donald Trump, he was a co-founder of, as you mentioned, the Lincoln Project, a group of Republicans and conservatives who have worked against Donald Trump. You've seen a lot of their ads. We hear a lot of them on our network. They have been one of the key thorns in Donald Trump's side since the time that he was elected president. But Weaver was someone who was on medical leave from that group in my conversations with sources for this story, they point out that not only was he on medical leave, but he never actually worked physically with other staffers for the Lincoln Project because of COVID. They weren't working in one kind of centralized office. And so Weaver wouldn't have been there even before his medical leave. But those are all the parameters sort of surrounding these allegations, which, as you mentioned, total mm -hmm. to more than 20, according to The New York Times. All right, Ali, let's get into that a little bit. According to the New York Times, these accusations stretch back a, a number of years. When did they start getting public attention? Well, they stretch back about five years to 2015, at least as far as the New York Times has found. But they started getting public attention first over the summer, only half of what we've seen. Over the summer, we started hearing about and the Lincoln Project started looking into some buzz on social media sites that Weaver might have been having relationships with men. It's notable because he's married to a woman. He has children with that woman. But that buzz was mostly relegated online. I'm told by Steve Schmidt from the Lincoln Project that at the time, in the summer of 2020, they asked Weaver, is there anything that they should know about regarding these rumors of his relationships? He said no, and he denied them. But then you fast forward a little bit to January of this year, when conservative outlets started reporting that there were conversations in direct messages that involved soliciting sexual commentary and also saying that he could provide job opportunities Eventually, those screenshots started coming out. At that point, we heard from Weaver himself on January 15th. He released a statement saying that he was gay and also apologizing for these inappropriate messages. And we've only seen this escalate really from there with the Times story that published just yesterday. Allie, one man says he was just 14 years old when Weaver started sending him messages. Uh, what more can you tell us about that? This is one of those oldest allegations that the Times found that Weaver reached out in 2015 to a boy at that point who followed him on Twitter and was only 14 years old. At that time, Weaver would have been putting the pieces together for John Kasich's presidential run. And that chatter started. And the person in question here, the 14-year-old, said that eventually in 2018, 
But it looks like we lost Allie's shot there. Uh, we'll try to get her back if we, oh. Get her back. Allison, can you hear me? Yeah, I'm sorry, Allie. The okay. beauty of technology in a snowstorm, you froze. Uh, I think we, we lost you a little bit after you're talking about Kasich there. Tell me about it. So these first messages to the youngest person that we know about from the Times reporting is they started in 2015 and went through 2018 and 2019. Weaver even at one point asking this boy, are you in high school still? The person in question said that he said yes. And Mr. Weaver replied, you looked older. The messages got a little bit more sexually explicit from there. But that's the oldest one that we know about from the Times reporting here. I know you spoke with Steve Schmidt, a co-founder of the Lincoln Project. What did he tell you about this? I think my biggest takeaway, Allison, was that he was so unequivocal in mm -hmm. saying that they didn't know what Weaver was doing until they heard from the Times yeah. a few days before the Times story published. Schmidt reiterated to me that Weaver had been on medical leave. He walked me through that they had asked him over the summer when they first heard about just relationships, whether there was anything that they should know. But really, you saw the statement that they put out saying that Weaver is a predator, that he's a liar, that he's yeah. deceptive. All of these things, a really strong statement from the Lincoln Foundation. But I think the other thing here is I asked Steve Schmidt if there was any investigation that was going to happen because Weaver was dangling job opportunities. And if there was any investigation that was going to happen with the Lincoln Project to see if any of those opportunities came through. Schmidt told me they weren't going to be launching an investigation because they're confident that none of those job offers ever came through. And he says no staff members were hired under Weaver or at his recommendation. But again, they first said that they found out basically when the Times came to them. And a quote here from Schmidt to me earlier today, he says unequivocally, absolutely mm -hmm. nobody knew. Ali, I know Weaver has not responded to NBC News' request for comment, but he did release a statement to Axio before we reached out. What did he say? Yeah, and this is back in mid-January, before the Times piece came out, but when we were first starting to hear these conversations and reporting from conservative media outlets that he was mm -hmm. having these kinds of conversations with boys over social media, he said in that statement at the time, the truth is I am gay and that I have a wife and two kids who I love. My inability to reconcile those two truths has led to this agonizing place. His statement at the time goes on to say, to the men I made uncomfortable through my messages that I viewed as consensual mutual conversations at the time, I am truly sorry. They were inappropriate and it was because of my failings that this discomfort was brought to you. And I think it's really important to point out here that while a lot of these conversations and this reporting is disturbing and uncomfortable, there was no unlawful contact here, contact here but certainly concerning conduct throughout. Migrant caravan headed to the U.S. border again. A 
Search of the Desperate, who with sheer will overpowered armed police on the Guatemalan border. It began with an estimated 11,000 on foot, crossing from Honduras to Guatemala. Now in Mexico, the caravan, smaller but still determined to reach its final destination, the United States. They may not know President Biden's name, but many believe he will be different on immigration than the name they do know, President Trump. She says this president has a good heart. He's a good president, but when asked which president, she says the one that took over for Trump. Documenting their grueling step-by-step -step journey, the Italian photographer, journalist Nico Filippo Rosso. The trek north over densely wooded mountains, driven in large part by despair. We traveled to Honduras a year ago. Then people there told us they wanted to leave to escape gang violence and a collapsed economy. You want to go to the United States? Yes. Y por qué? Why? Because here there's so much poverty. Those fears still remain after two Category 4 hurricanes hit just two weeks apart last November. In this dramatic Rosso photograph, Jessica, a mother, collapsed under the strain. She's since been revived, saying she had to leave her hurricane-damaged village of San Pedro Sula. So, Nico, why are people leaving? Entire neighborhoods are still under the mud and under heavy under water. It's impossible to be there, like on top of endemic poverty and, and violence. I would say people are desperate. Those immigrants who think they're coming to the United States, are they wrong if they think that things have changed now that President Trump is gone and President Biden is in? I think they'll be deeply disappointed. I think there was a sense that just because there was change in administration that next day everyone will be welcome at the border. That is simply not true. President Biden now has but a few weeks before this caravan is knocking on the door. He says now that President Biden is here, we are looking to see what the new president says to move forward. An answer Americans who live along the southern border are also waiting to hear. Kerry Sanders, NBC News.